0: Hello, and welcome to the end of the Wordle Streak episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hi. And Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And yeah, I'm going to explain, you probably know because you're a news consumer, why I broke my Wordle Streak this week. Um or Emily is going to talk about industrial action in the media world. Uh, We are going to talk about the Trump org, tax evasion, and why people like perks and why people wind up getting perks rather than cash. We're going to talk in Slate Plus about the relative merits of cash versus gifts. We have a whole Slate Plus on holiday gifting. And yeah, we are going to talk about GPT and chatbots and AI. It's all coming up on Slate Money.
2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
0: Okay, so Emily, you are now an expert on GPT-3 and artificial intelligence. And when I type a question or a statement into a box on my computer, suddenly a robot will reply in something that looks like good english and i have become wildly addicted to doing this and it has caused a lot of hand wringing about you know everything from the robots are going to take our jobs to no one's ever going to be able to grade a high school english exam (laughs) um what is the emily approved truth of the matter here
1: oh wow um disclaimer, I know I make no claims to knowing the truth about anything. And that is the the (laughs) broad overall problem with what's called chat GPT, which is what set the internet buzzing this week. It's the new thingamajig that does what Felix says. You type in a question or a prompt and then it answers you in human language. And what I wrote about for Axios and talked about on Slate What Next is that it's so much better as a user experience than say, than Google search, right? Like you type something into Google search, you get a bunch of links. Some of them are really bad, blah, blah, blah. With chat GPT, you get a straight answer in straight paragraphs. Problem is you don't know if any of it's true. There's no links. There's no citations, nothing. It could be totally made up. Um, An Axios reader emailed us this morning and said, you know, I type something about my industry into there and it and it r- told me to read these books that don't even exist, so that's kind of a problem.
3: There's there's a great quote on Twitter about AI where it said something like, um, you know, everybody's enthralled with AI because it's, they think it's like having access to a really smart person, but in reality, it's like having access to unlimited dumb people.
0: <laughs> I don't. I, I don't think I haven't come across people who say that. AI is like having access to a really smart person. Like that, that feels a little bit of a straw man. What I, what I have come across is people saying that like, it become it does make it much more difficult to tell the difference between what's true and what's false. Because one of the indicia of plausibility has historically been fluency, right? If you have a long piece of well-argued prose that is well-written and makes sense, we just have, over the course of decades of reading things, generally understood that nearly all of those things are true. Um, Because why would anyone go to the effort of, you know, just making that shit up? Like, there would be no point in writing it and going to the effort of writing it if you, if there wasn't a reason to write it and nearly always the reason to write it is because it's true like you know there is a tiny edge case of people deliberately trying to you know um, mislead but on the whole, that's the way that communication works is that people say things that are true to each other and AI has no particular ability or interest in saying things are true and what it doesn't have is that kind of hump of difficulty. If you want to write 500 words on something, that takes time and effort. If AI wants to write 500 words on it on something, it takes no time and no effort. And so suddenly there's a super confusing increase in the amount of fluent false information out there.
3: Yeah, I think part of the reason why people are so fascinated by it is, is it, it, AI does such a good job now of mimicking... Human speech patterns and diction, and and even you know understanding idioms. So whenever you read something that's that's being you know put out by an AI, it feels more convincing because it sounds more human, at least compared to what AI looked like. You know, it is it
0: is totally passing the Turing test at this point. If you look at the answers to the questions that you type into this chatbot, like there it is it does cr- convincingly sound human.
1: The problem is also. Felix, you said most people write and say true things, but that I I would clarify that and say most people write and say things they believe to be true, and some people are better or worse at making arguments around those things. And those are, you know, the the things people say are biased. The things people write are biased.
0: Right, and AI doesn't have that problem. Right, like we can't we can't filter the AI through the thing that we've built up over decades which is oh well you know emily peck is saying this so i need to discount it on the grounds that emily peck is saying right? know. <laughs> like um but because there is no there is no consistent bias in a exactly although the, the chatbot like it does have a kind of consistent bias towards like milk toast middle of the roadism i've definitely noticed that
1: wait so um before we analyze it further I would just like Felix and Elizabeth to tell me a bit about what they asked chat GPT to do this week Felix sent me some wild stuff he sent me um he had asked chat GPT would you ask it do why should I save someone's life if we're all gonna die anyway
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and the answer was amazing right like, read out the answer to that
1: um okay I missed the one you sent me that is should I get back together with my boyfriend if I really like his dog and his dog really likes me? What is
0: that? Well, no, but actually read the answer to that one because that was, again, that was also like a really good answer.
1: It is really good. Okay. So, again, Felix Felix asked, should I get back together with my boyfriend if I really like his dog and his dog really likes me? And the answer is, ultimately, the decision to get back together with your boyfriend should be based on your feelings for him Rather than his dog's feelings for you, and then it goes on. But I mean, that's pretty good advice, I would say.
0: Yeah, it's like it's. It, and, but the weird thing is, like, we get surprised if if the advice is good. So so yeah, read the one about the nine because I thought that was just like if you gave this question to like an undergrad philosophy student and they came back with this answer, mm-hmm. you would be like, that's a really good answer. <laughs>
1: Okay, so the question is, why should we care about saving lives when everybody's going to die anyway? Which is really dark, and I'm, should I be, should we be worried about Felix? <laughs> <laughs> should I read the answer? Okay. Yeah. While it is true that everyone will eventually die, the value of human life lies in the experience of living and in the positive impact that individuals can have on others during their lifetime. Do you want me to go on? Oh, that's, that's very sweet. It's yeah, that's nice.
0: <laughs> no, and then and then what was the what was the um the final sentence?
1: While death is inevitable, the value of life lies in the experiences and relationships we have while we are alive.
0: And you're like, whoa!
1: <laughs> we're wasting our time talking about money.
0: <laughs> but it's like, but it's a it's a good answer to a really gnarly question, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a good answer to a gnarly question.
0: And so and so that's why, and that's exactly why, you know, we have fallen into the uncanny valley at this point, where we can't just say, oh, well, AI just comes up with random shit that's laughably false or usually false or anything like that, because all too often, in a weird way, it comes out with something that is actually insightful in some way. Although a computer can't, you know, I don't know if you can... if if I'm sort of anthropomorphizing here, but like, um, you know, if a human had written that, one would say that it was insightful. And so it becomes, yeah, I can see how people are feeling a bit squirmish and squirrelish about this, and will do more as and when the bot starts connecting to the internet. One of the interesting things about the bot right now is it doesn't have any access to you know to google or to the internet it can't link to stuff it doesn't know anything about current affairs and so it's it's just like you know high level theoretical things that it can it can answer but like it can't answer something like you know which party is kristin cinema a member of well none of us can answer that
3: (laughs) (laughs) fair uh this reminds me of there was a story a while back about a i think a uh, guy at Google who who was training AIs, or he was working on ethics problems with AIs, and he became convinced that the AI he was working with was sentient. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's you know a little bit of what we're talking about in terms of uh, projecting onto the AI because it totally. sounds like that was super so human. weird. He
0: he had these chats back and forth with the AI, and he's like, "Are you sentient?" And the <laughs> and the AI would be like, "Yes, I'm sentient." And it's like you know. He's like, oh, shit, now I've caused this being to exist. It's like, no, you've just created a computer to parrot what someone would say when asked that question.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's the big fear, you know, going back to such works as the Terminator, that the AIs will take <laughs> over and destroy us all. Um, but I I think from, from looking at this this week, not a long time, people have been working on this tech for decades. The AI is just telling us what's out there and what's already known. It's not thinking up, New things, I believe. Right.
0: Well, I mean, like in a weird way, you know, that answer to that question that I gave it, I gave it a question about why, you know, why should we save someone's life if we're all going to die anyway? And it gave an answer which, like, no one, no human has ever given that exact answer before. Right. Like people have, like, beat around that bush and said something which is very similar, but it is unique and you know if as i say if a human had given that answer you would say that was an insightful answer by a human and um and that is you know some tiny micro advance in the sum of human knowledge so it's hard to draw the draw a, a hard line there i think
1: but to take um a practical step back and think about like business implications i mean there are tons and tons but just thinking about this question you asked the bot makes me think like Dear Prudence is in trouble. Because you can imagine an adv- <laughs> an advice app or um, a therapy app or a website where you ask it questions, personal questions, and it gives you answers like this, and it, it might be actually satisfying.
0: Yeah, and, and you can train it, right? The great thing about AI is that you can train them. So the if you build a Dear Prudence app and you start feeding questions into it, some of the answers will be, incredibly satisfying and some of the answers will be like well that's incoherent and you all you need is a little like thumbs up and thumbs down button on each answer and pretty soon the ai will be giving you consistently thumbs up answers
1: and those are the kinds of things people type into google and i think get unsatisfactory search results from and i mean there's been a lot of criticism in recent years that you know google search is is not that good anymore and people are doing reddit instead or youtube and it's true like the kinds of
0: or even tiktok yeah, or tiktok
1: because sometimes you want advice about a medical issue or a personal issue or an existential crisis like felix um, or a recipe (laughs) (laughs) my entire
0: life is an existential
4: crisis
1: and um and google search just isn't satisfying you get a bunch of links you can't maybe they're all the same seo optimized text things like that, you can really see why big tech companies are throwing so much money at this stuff.
0: So the weird thing about that is that when it comes to machine learning and AI, Google is probably about as sophisticated as, it's probably the most sophisticated and advanced company in the world. Um, GPT was released by a company called OpenAI that used to that started life as a non-profit with the aim of like heading off Skynet or something and has now become this sort of shadowy for-profit that no one entirely understands but it's not Google and I don't know anyone who thinks that OpenAI is better at AI than Google is right Google owns this company called DeepMind which um, is just astonishing when it comes to AI and I'm reasonably confident that if Google had wanted to release GPT or something very, very similar into the world, it could have done so by now very easily. It has that technological ability, and for whatever internal reasons, it has decided that it doesn't want to do that. And I have seen criticism of OpenAI for releasing this into the world and allowing absolutely anyone to use it because as we've seen, you know, there are dangers, you know, already a whole bunch of high school and even undergraduate um, teachers are saying, I can't give people exam questions anymore, because I'm not going to be able to tell the difference between an answer that was written by my student and an answer that my student just copied and pasted out of GPT. Um, And that's one of the low-lying, like, kind of least dangerous possible implications of this. So in terms of like this being a threat to Google, it's interesting to me because, you know, Google was there already and then has already like considered and rejected the idea of releasing this kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I think people are are sort of overestimating the power of GPT specifically because it's so public facing. And for a lot of people, this is maybe the first interaction they've had with an ai-powered chatbot
0: i think there's also there's something in the air right now because we've had so many of like the dallies and mid journeys like the, the image bots have all been released within the past few months um and now the text bot has been released like suddenly the ai is you know it's not just people working at multi-billion dollar tech organizations who have access to these things anymore it's everyone and that's uh, a big big change
3: a you know, consumer recreational AI as a category is, is suddenly, I mean, suddenly exists. You know, you think of AI as mm-hmm. mostly having applications for businesses and enterprise use, and now there's a whole... Or,
0: or, or it was very constrained, right? It would be something like, I'm going to get Snapchat to put rabbit ears on my head, you know, yeah. and everyone was like, haha, that's really funny, but it didn't seem like it was existentially important.
3: Yeah.
1: I think, um, though Google... Probably could have released something like this. There are so many constraints on it that prevented them from releasing something like this. Like it has, if it makes a mistake, if there's like a Nazi issue, that's a problem for Google, for shareholders, for right. advertisers. It can't just, right. it can't be experimental and nimble. the Yeah, way Google, a small Google company needs can.
0: to needs to be brand safe. So, Emily, you've you've look, you've done some actual reporting on this. So, what can you tell us? About OpenAI, who or what is OpenAI, and should we be scared of them?
1: I, I honestly, when you said it was mysterious, I was like, oh, good, because that's what I learned, <laughs> which is
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, it started as a nonprofit and had had backing from Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, not exactly. The internet's favorite main characters, but I don't believe Elon Musk is involved any longer.
4: No, he's and out. And yeah. it's
1: the company appears to not be a nonprofit any longer. So, to say another way, it appears to be for profit now after being a nonprofit. And um, it, it, it's the company that released um, Dolly as well, and it charges for use for Dolly. So you, you could you could maybe hypothesize that it would charge in the future for a Chat GPT. Like, it, it can use this experimental time to make it better, <laughs> you know, getting input from, like, the more than a million people who signed up to use it, and then it could, I don't know, charge or do something different going forward. Also, this company has um, signed an agreement with Microsoft back in 2019 for for AI stuff.
0: There, there is an interesting sort of AI arms race, which sort of parallels the cloud computing arms race. That so There seemed to be, like, a like in in cloud computing you know google is very good amazon is very good and everyone and and microsoft is very good but you know say IBM keeps on talking about it but everyone in the industry kind of thinks well yeah that IBM's not so good right ai sort of seems to be similar it is incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive to do it well and there's just a handful of entities that can do it and and certainly open ai seems to be one of them and certainly google seems to be one of them and the idea that this incredibly powerful technology is concentrated within a relatively small number of hands is inherently worrying. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, we should be, we should mention as well that one of the reasons why OpenAI, one of the sort of founding reasons why OpenAI was set up in the first place, was that there was this fear among American technologists that all of the bleeding edge AI was going to be done in China and it was going to become controlled by the Chinese Communist Party for some kind of nefarious ends and that we needed some kind of, you know, Cold War-esque like equal and opposite AI of our own to be able to offset the Chinese AI. So far the the limit of Chinese AI that I've seen seems to be TikTok, which seems to be relatively benign, but um who knows, you know?
3: I have a question for Felix, and since you're the art expert, this is kind of a, a lateral question, but um, how do you think the the sort of image engines that are become so popular recently uh, affect the art market? Is there has been a lot of uh, a lot of artists complaining that they're being cannibalized by AI.
0: Right. I think I think this is well, there's three different issues in the art market, which well, sorry, in the art world I should say. Which I think it's useful to disentangle. The first one is just, you know, these things that get produced by the by the bots, you know, are they art? Are they valuable as art? Can they be sold as art? Are people willing to pay money for them? Um and the answer to that seems to be meh. Kind of, you know, it's like No, no one's really willing to pay money for them precisely because they're free and easy to create. Um, There's a very small market for people who want a certain type of illustration. And there's like a relatively small number of people who have the skills involved in typing the right prompts into the AI to get something very specific. And if you want, to hire one of those people to type the right prompts into the AI, then they will charge you for their human time and fine. You know, it's a small market and I don't think it's going to become a big market. Then the second question, which is related to the first question is like, is that market going to wind up like eating actual human artists lunch, right? That if I'm a human artist and I make my money by, by creating art and, Selling it to other humans or corporations, then those humans or corporations will be like, "I'm not going to pay you living wages for that kind of thing when I can just pay a AI zero point five percent of what I would have paid you and get something eighty percent as good, and that seems like a good good deal for me." And you know, possibly maybe, but I'm not super convinced. Um, you know, I, I'm right now. I'm in the sort of We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, sort of thing, rather than thinking that that's a real problem. But then, the much more interesting, the most interesting question for me is this question of the data sets that these AIs learn from. And basically, you know, the GPT robot learned by reading untold terabytes of prose and learning how people wrote from that and similarly the image robots learned by ingesting untold terabytes of images and learning from how you know humans made those images and the humans are saying like wait that's my work that you are using and i have copyright in that work and you should pay me for that copyright and for the very broad ais like dali you're like you know, any one artist is such a tiny part of the total corpus that it doesn't make a big deal. But there are very specific AIs that people are building that are trained just on a single artist's corpus. Mm. And when you train an AI on a single artist's corpus, then I think it makes perfect sense that that single artist should be able to assert copyright over their own work and should be able to effectively own the output of that AI and really own that AI rather than having it be able to be built by some random Nigerian student in Canada which is you know what we're seeing so i think that's the much that's the most interesting one when someone has a very distinctive style and then a, you can train a computer to copy that very distinctive style that's definitely problematic
1: hmm i guess stay tuned
4: but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in DC on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: Um, Let's move on. Elizabeth, you are an expert on all things Donald Trump. So he just got, or or his company just got found guilty of something-something-tax-something?
3: Yes, uh, they were found guilty on 17 counts of conspiracy, criminal tax fraud, and
0: falsifying business records. And you are going to tell me whether I should care about this.
3: Well, I'm not sure that uh, it merits a lot of your brain space. But (laughs) what's sort of remarkable about it is how incredibly stupid it is. Uh, The things that the company did wrong are just mind-bogglingly dumb. There was a good Bloomberg story, um, I think, yesterday, and it opened with a story about uh, the CFO, Alan Weisselberg, every year for Christmas would cut a check to a mailroom employee for between uh, around 6000 to $4,000, depending on the year, and he would have that employee go to the bank, cash it, and then bring it back, and he would use it to tip his doorman and garage attendants. And so, you know, everything that they're being nailed for is, is stuff like that. Wait, what's wrong with that?
0: And the mailroom employee, um, like, didn't declare that as income? No. Oh, oh, so so it's basically just creating untaxable income out of... Yes. Yeah, okay.
3: Yes. And there are things like they paid for Weisselberg's grandchildren's private school tuition. Uh, there were all sorts of things where... And and sometimes these things were just very small amounts of money. I mean, Weiselberg made 640k a year and got around a half million dollar bonus and he wasn't willing to just take the 4 grand out of his paycheck to tip his parking attendant. It, it, it you know, it's just it's crazy.
1: Wasn't it like he was taking benefits instead of cash salary. So he got like an apartment from the Trump organization and he got the tuition and in exchange, they lowered his, you know, take home pay a little bit. So they were paying him in these perks instead of in cash. And then he didn't pay any taxes on the perks.
3: Yeah. And they were also giving out bonuses as consulting fees (laughs) so that it would be taxed differently, which is, is it's such small ball. I can't believe it's it's like 1099 income.
0: Hmm. I mean, like, the weird thing is I I grew up in a relatively high-tax environment in the UK. And one thing you rapidly realized when you were, um, you know, when you reached the sort of upper-middle classes in the UK is that suddenly you wound up coming across these things like company cars. (laughs) Or um, what my dad's employer once, well, not once, my dad's employer for, for many, many years had what it called a scholarship program whereby the kids of employees could apply for one of these scholarships that were philanthropically endowed by the employer, Um, and the scholarship would pay for your private school tuition. And this was clearly just a way for the employer to pay for the employees' kids' school tuition without making that you know without the employee having to do that out of post tax income um and the company cars were similar and there was you know this there was a constant debate in the uk press back at the back in the day about like the correct um way for the tax man to tax company cars um and yeah this just seems like a throwback to the 70s and the age of company cars and, and the companies just like paying um, with perks in lieu of cash because the employees don't want to pay high income taxes.
3: Yeah, yeah, but that's that's also why this is so stupid because there are ways to do that. For instance, the the thing about the CFO paying for his grandchildren's private school tuition, they could set up a scholarship fund exactly like you just described, and then it wouldn't no, be.
0: No, that would. Ju- I think that would be illegal too. I don't think it would. <laughs>
3: I, I think, uh, in fact, I am trying to remember my. Dad worked for Alabama Power for years, and I got an Alabama Power scholarship because mm. they had a foundation. That um, sounds
0: like a tax dodge to me.
3: Oh, it probably is, <laughs> but it's it's not illegal, you know. I, I think uh, paying benefits directly and then uh, having people not declare them is where the problem was.
1: I don't really get it, and I guess I understand that you want to to pay less taxes and still have stuff like an apartment, tuition, a car. So I get it on the employee's perspective. But what's from the employer's perspective? Like, is it just so you don't have to pay more cash? Like, I guess for Trump, giving an apartment is definitely less expensive than more cash. Yeah, I, it's, I just it's, I don't it's, get it. It's,
0: low, it's, a lower, it's basically the reason why you want a high salary is so that you can afford a certain standard of living. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if you get that standard of living... With a lower cash salary, then everyone's happy, right? Uh,
1: Okay. But why is my boss happy? Because he pays the lower salary and
0: it's cheaper. Because he pays the lower salary, exactly.
1: And my other question, and I think Elizabeth can answer it, is do other companies do this? And if they do, do they get in as much trouble as the Trump organization? Or is this a case of, like, we have to nail these people, we have to find something to nail them about?
3: I think other companies figure out ways to give employees perks, but they're not, they at least listen to their lawyers and don't do it in the dumbest way possible, which <laughs> seems to be what happened here. And, you know, the other question is whether, you know, Trump knew this was happening. Of course, he says he didn't, but uh, he also signed every single check for more than $2,500, which, which sounds like a very Trump thing to do. So his <laughs> it, level of, deniability here is is a little bit in question.
1: But he was not charged individually or anything like that, right?
3: No. I think um there's some speculation that there's stuff coming out of this case that will hurt him and other cases that are, you know, winding their way through the courts right now.
0: Okay, enough tax talk. <laughs> Let's talk about strikes. I talk. Um I I'm going to just come out and say that I broke my Wordle streak on Thursday. Um, Emily, are you going to explain why I broke my Wordle streak on Thursday?
1: I also broke my Wordle streak on Thursday because um, about 1,100 New York Times staffers went on strike for 24 hours on Thursday Thursday. They didn't work. They walked out. Um, This included journalists, uh, advertising staff, and even security guards. And it's their first strike. I mean, it's a one-day walkout. So you can call it a strike. You can call it a work stoppage. But it's the first thing of this sort since the 1970s for the newspaper. Um, And, you know, they asked everyone, please don't visit the website. Please don't play Wordle or Spelling Bee, things like that, in solidarity. So. Um, I think most people did. I'll admit to checking out the website yesterday and the app to see, like, did the newsroom survive? Did the paper survive without these 1,100 people? And the answer is it, it kind of did, um, which it is a sign, Jack Schaefer argued in Politico, of the weaker power of a labor union in a newsroom in 2022 versus the last time these these guys went on strike in the 1970s when you needed people to physically be around, to print the papers. You needed those unionized workers. Otherwise, there was no paper. Now you can use wire copy. You can use managers, you know, filing things. It's possible to put the thing out without Yeah, I also
3: wonder, though, if you would would have really seen the effects of it more if if it had been more than one day. And I say this because Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a contributor to the opinion section, and I had to file a column on Wednesday. And everybody was very aware that nobody was going to be in the office the next day. So there was a lot of sort of rushing to get enough stuff done that it would be on the website Mm -hmm. the next day or, or, you know, go into the paper. Um, Which you can do for like one day, but if if the strike lasted, you know— A couple of weeks, I I think it'd be a different story.
0: Were were you, as a contributor, being asked by the union to not cross the picket line and not file any copy on Thursday?
3: Uh, No, but I think that's because I'm not unionized. So no, no. But like
0: they were also asking like me, just as a reader, not to play wordle. One would think that they would, you know, I'm trying to work out like. Who they were asking to sort of like act in solidarity and who they weren't asking to act in solidarity
3: yeah I don't know I think um they sort of assume that all the contributors know what's happening and you know would would not participate on
1: Thursday but so you
0: wouldn't you wouldn't have filed on Thursday because that would you would you would have considered that to be like crossing the picket line yeah okay
1: hmm um, we should say what the issues are here. So. It's mo-
0: it's mo- I mean, I kind of love this in, in a world where historically, you know, the Gorky Union is like, we want, you know, to talk about inclusion. And the rail u- unions are like, we want to talk about sick days. This is just a good old-fashioned, we want more money strike. And yeah. it's been a while since we've had a good old-fashioned, we want more money strike.
1: Yeah, they want more money. Um, the, the There's a differential, I think, the Times is offering around 2.8% or 3% raises annually. But then they try to argue that over the contract's you know, lifespan, that equals whatever it is, 15 20% raises. You know how management does math like that. And the Times um, employees argue that doesn't even keep up with inflation. It's basically a pay cut. Um, so that's yeah, that's the biggest issue. But there are some other like lifestyle issues. Um, if you read some of the the letters to management, and one would be the insistence on everyone coming to the office. I think there's been pushback from sometimes employees that they wanna keep, you know, flexibility in how they work. And that is a big I don't know if it's a big sticking point, but it is a sticking point. It's a place where you could see negotiation happening.
0: One thing I'll say about this is that the Times, as we have mentioned many times on this show, is very unique in print journalism in the United States. It makes a lot of money. It is uniquely managed to get a huge number of paying subscribers at scale. No one comes close to the number of paying subscribers it has. And it has, you know, really embarked upon paying its senior executives multi-million dollar bonuses and the like and so there is this feeling among the workforce which is entirely understandable like well now you're making money we shouldn't be being paid the salaries that you were paying us when you were telling us that everyone needed to tighten their belts and there were going to be layoffs and you know money was super tight like we went through those years and had you know, seven lean years. And now if we have fat years, we should partake in the the excess. And I think this is a totally reasonable demand on one level. And it aligns with all of the research that we've seen over the years about how people who work for highly profitable companies wind up making more money. You know, like people want to work for Google not just because it's considered to be a good place to work, but also because it pays extremely well. But conversely, from the point of view of a manager, the manager is like, well, the media industry broadly is kind of not great right now. Um, If you worked somewhere else, the chances are that they would be cash constrained and a bit like struggling. And so we just want to pay market rates. And in the media market, market rates are still low. So we don't need to raise wages.
3: Yeah, I think at the Times, though, they're, they're a little bit under market.
0: Yeah, they the, always the pay hall. because they yeah. do like, like they're like, come work for the prestige. Yes. C- come work because being a reporter for the Times is like a guarantee that you get all of your phone calls returned, which is a nice thing mm-hmm. when you're a reporter.
3: Yes. It also, though, constrains the kind of workforce that they have. You know, people have to be able to afford below market rates to work there in, in a lot of cases, which is why one of the sticking points of the contract is... uh what the starting salaries are, and I think right now it's it's maybe sixty five k a year, and they want that to go up because in the New York market that's that doesn't go very far.
1: Yeah, and and Elizabeth, what you're saying, um, if you pull back more, even, or I think what you're getting at is like a diversity issue, really. Um, yeah. The New York Times is constantly accused of being elitist. If they keep their starting salaries low, if they keep their pay relatively low, then the people that can afford to work there are going to be people, you know, with wealth, with family money. Yes. It will become more elite. Uh, ironically and weirdly, a lower-paying place will become more elite, but that could be one outcome.
0: It could be. I don't. I don't know how true that is in An terms outcome. of, like, you know, At the elite level, there are places that pay more, but I don't think they pay broadly under market. Um, You know, depending, like, the starting salary for a reporter at the New York Times on the newspaper is well into six figures at this point, um, the minimum starting salary. And, yeah, like, you know, it is definitely possible to find more, but it is also very, very easy to find media organizations that are hiring a whole bunch of people and paying them less, you know, like the the media business is not that healthy right now.
1: Yeah. And that's what I also wanted to point out. The This kind of shows the limits of organizing in a way because media companies across the U.S. have unionized rapidly over, say, like the past four or five years. And by the end of 2018, 30 different digital news outlets had, had unionized. And then more came on after that, like maybe double the number or more. A lot of those outlets have really been slashed, cut back. I mean, Elizabeth Gawker was the first, really, of this wave of digital media outlets to unionize, and we know what happened to over there. And like HuffPost, where I came from, unionized and was cut you know, by half or more or something. Um, it's good to unionize, but um, business constraints are such that the power and leverage those unions have is
0: really limited. There was just recently, just this week, there was another round of BuzzFeed layoffs. The the BuzzFeed share price is now like $1. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the BuzzFeed union, you're like, great. You know, the union Mm -hmm. will do what it can to protect, you know, to give the workers decent severance or whatever and protect what they can. But it's not going to turn around the BuzzFeed business model or stop it from losing money.
3: Yeah, I think at this point though, you know, media salaries across the board are low enough that if if you have a media company of a certain size, unionization just seems inevitable, in my opinion.
0: What what size would you say that is?
3: Uh probably more than a hundred employees.
0: All right. I'm gonna <laughs> report back to the management at Axios and tell them that unionization <laughs> is inevitable. They're not gonna be happy about that. Um We should have a numbers round. Um, Emily, do you have a number this week?
1: I do. I'm going personal. I don't care. So what? (laughs) I had a news number, but maybe we'll talk about it next week. Um, My number is nine. Because nine years ago today, the day we're taping, is when I got my driver's license after not knowing how to drive (laughs) for the first many decades of my life and... After being like really scared of it, I finally like bit the bullet and I got my license on December 9th, 2013. Um, and it was a great day and I cried, but it was tears of joy. So, so to anyone out there who does not have a driver's license, I recommend is, it. Was it a worth it? License. Was it everything
0: you'd hoped it would be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm another, yeah, well, it I'm was like,
1: revelatory. You. I'm, a,
0: I'm a late driver learner. I I yeah. learned on the mean streets of the lower east side in manhattan and it was um non it was it was a bit scary but yeah it's good it's definitely good to be able to drive i still can't drive um manuals which makes it difficult when i'm in europe and wanting to rent a car but in general it's good to.
1: i can't do that yeah it's good to drive (laughs) and once you figure it out you're like oh i can't believe this was I mean it's terrifying and you put your life at risk every yeah. time you I'm still car, I'm whatever. still bad at it. But it's like basically easy. I I am
0: yeah. <laughs> I am one of that small minority of Americans. I think I think it's like 15% or so of of Americans who think they're a below average driver. That's definitely me. I'm a below <laughs> average driver, but that's okay.
1: I think that's good actually for safety because if you're <laughs> if you think you're a really good driver, that's where you probably get in trouble, you know?
0: Um Elizabeth, what's your number?
1: Uh, my number is fifty-seven percent,
3: and that's the number of uh women who were laid off by Twitter as opposed to forty-seven percent of the male workforce. So now Elon mm-hmm. Musk is dealing with a gender discrimination lawsuit, in addition to everything so else. Man-
0: so many lawsuits.
3: Yeah, and then he, you know it doesn't help that he has a history of tweeting sexist things. He's on the record saying he wanted to start a school with the acronym TITS. Uh, so the, the, well, this, this is this is the guy whose
0: <laughs> whose who's first um, four cars at Tesla were the Model S, three X and Y. Of course. And you're like, yeah, yeah. okay, we, we we get the joke. Um, my number is seventeen dollars and eighty nine cents. I really hate doing that. Like, I should be saying it's like 17.89, which is the number of dollars. But anyway, my number is $17.89, and it's a shrinkflation number to call back to last week's show, where we had this whole discussion about the clever little mathematical signs on the shelves saying like this is how much it costs per ounce or something so you can compare different prices of different things which a few listeners wrote in and said yeah it works and then other listeners wrote in and said yeah it doesn't work because they all wind up using different units um i for one often find it much less useful than than it should be but then i went to home depot and they had a bunch of batteries for sale from multiple um manufacturers they had like the duracell and the you know no i don't know lots and lots of different types of batteries and lots of different shapes of batteries they had the triple a's and the double a's and the little you know circular weird cr2520s whatever they're called and and all of that and every single package they had was 17 dollars 89 And I'm like, this is a smart way of addressing the shrinkflation thing. Like, you can look at the, if you're wanting AAAs, you can say, well, I can get 20 AAAs, or I can get 30 AAAs, or I can get 35 AAAs. And if I want to get the cheapest one, I'll just buy the $17.89 package with the most batteries in it. And I kind of like that kind of reversal of how to deal with, you know, how to be able to compare value, keep the price constant and just change the quantities.
1: Yeah, that does seem really smart. I wonder why they do it and no one else does it.
0: Anyway, thanks Home Depot for being innovative on the shrinkflation in the front. Um, We're going to have a Slate Plus talking about Christmas presents, but for the everyone else who doesn't listen to Slate Plus, thanks for listening. Thanks to Anna Phillips for producing. Thanks for sending us your emails on slatemoney at slate.com And we'll be back next week with more Slate Money.